For November 2nd, 2020, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 644. It's about on par with Hamlet. Bad Hamlet. From the dawn of podcasts we came, talking noisily down through the weeks, recording many pedantic episodes, struggling to reach the time of the overthinking. When the few listeners who haven't turned their attention entirely to TikTok will listen to the last word. No one has ever known we were among you. No one has ever subscribed to this podcast. Until now, welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve. I'm Matt Rather. I'm joined by my good friends, Peter Fenzel. Hey, Pete. Hello, Matthew. <laughs> Hello. Hello, Pete. Oh, sorry. I, I, I dropped it for a second. And uh, Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. How are you, Matt? This week we... That was, ter- that was a terrible song. No, no. I'll, do, I'll do it again. Uh, how are you, Mark? I'm fine, Matthew. Uh um, this week we pay tribute to Sean Connery, um, who is, uh, amazing. I think Mark, you pointed out as we were preparing for this, he was what? He was a Russian sub captain. He was, uh, Indiana Jones father. He was a, uh, a Spanish metallurgist, metallurgist of Egyptian extraction. Who also uh, spent time in Japan. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and he did it all with his same, uh, he was James freaking Bond, for goodness sake. And he did it all with his same accent. And, and very few other people could have done that with, um, uh, you know, with the level of success, uh, success that, that he did. Um, so, uh, let's, uh, let's just begin. I mean, there's, there's a very, there's something very exciting. And I know, I know Pete in particular is just beside himself with excitement, uh, oh. at, at the topic of, of this episode. It's going to be an immortal episode, guys. Immortal. <laughs> it's going to be great. Yeah. It's, uh, I'm, I'm not looking forward to the ending, frankly. Um, Who wants the podcast forever? I guess Pete does. <laughs> yes. That, well, I mean, we, we're going to become one with all podcasts. Spoiler alert. Um, but before we do that, let's just, uh, let's take a second. We've done this before when we, um, have lost, uh, you know, artists who are, are meaningful to us, uh, people who have sort of been, you know, characters on overthinking it in the kind of overthinking it pantheon or just in, in our lives. We've, we've, uh, talked about them when they, when they passed and sort of acknowledged them. And we've actually discussed before what that means, right? Why it's, it's significant to do that and why that's a, you know, no one, no one should shame you for, uh, you know, for caring about the things that you, that you care about. So, uh, we want to, we want to take a second out and talk about Sean Connery. And uh, everyone just have a chance to uh, share a thought or something, something about Sean Connery that that strikes you at this moment or how how if Sean Connery has touched your life, how has Sean Connery touched your life? We didn't decide on an order. Uh, I, you know, does either of you want to go first? Should we go alphabetical? Pete, you you want to go first? There you go. Alphabetical. So when I think of Sean Connery, I'm reminded of college days 
where contrary to type, it was often the case that my immediate friends, especially those I lived around, uh, were beset by constant stress and distress that was of a nature and magnitude that was difficult to articulate. You, you sort of didn't have the luxury to really talk about how upset you were about all the things that were going wrong or were bad. Um, and, and so, you know, we developed all sorts of little euphemisms and little sorts of ways of of talking about uh, how we were doing. And mostly I'm talking about, of course, like excessive workload, right? You know, various sorts of post nigh post adolescent social failures um, and so on and so forth. And, and so uh, as, as you may have remembered from that time period, I don't know if it's the case anymore, but if in one of those evenings of some distress, you happen to turn on a television attached to a cable subscription, which is this old thing they used to do in the olden times before TikTok, uh, <laughs> you used to have a pretty even odds of coming across the Hunt for Red October starring Sean Connery as a Russian submarine, Soviet submarine captain. Uh, and he, in that role, has this real seriousness through much of his performance, but these glimmers of humor and these glimmers of delight that I think, uh, I mean, I don't really know. I mean, I know a lot about him, but I still don't really feel like I truly know him in terms of what he was really like. But in his performance, he had this great way of filtering through really kind of dire states of things with with humor and with a little bits of joy. Uh, and so one of the euphemisms that we would use for describing a situation that was bad, but where we didn't really have the opportunity in the given situation to acknowledge how bad it was, lest the whole house of cards come tumbling down, <laughs> right? Um, we would say something along the lines of, some things down here don't react well to bullets, <laughs> which is uh, what uh, Sean Connery advises. So wait, was uh, it, Pete, yeah. was it like, uh, hey, Pete, you, uh, you cramming for your midterms? How's that going? Uh, some things down here don't react well to much. <laughs> Got it. Hey, 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 Pete, you, uh, you uh, went on a on a date, a first date on Friday. What, what, how did how'd you make out? <laughs> I was like, verify range to target, one ping only. One ping. Vasily. Uh, hey, hey, Pete, I give hear me that. A um, I, I hear that uh, the politics in this certain undergraduate extracurricular organization are uh, are just very vicious. I hear Cortez burned his ships to well motivated <laughs> men. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so the idea being that the sort of cheerfulness. So, I have watched the Hunt for Red October all the way through twice in a row. I'm, I think uh, because they used to play it twice in a row. They used to do this thing where they would play m movies twice in a row, and I think it was either TBS or TND or both. And I've done that with both. The uh, the Devil's Advocate starring Al Pacino and Keanu Reeves and The Hunt for Red October starring Sean Connery, uh, dinosaur hunter extraordinaire Sam Neill and drag icon Tim Curry um, in, in, in the roles that made them famous as submarine officers. Uh, but yes, so I think Hunt for Red October is definitely one of those movies I've watched twice all the way through. It has a certain comforting characteristic and it's one of those things where you, you can't really take him too seriously because he has this really thick Scottish accent and he's so obviously not at all Russian, let alone Soviet Russian. But at the same time, it is, it is a great performance <laughs> and, and the, and the uh, searching for the answer to that question is I think a worthy, a worthy pursuit in itself. Like why is the red, the hunt for red October good is a question we might have to pick up. At a uh, at a different date because but, it's uh, uh, because it's the story of Alec Baldwin going to sleep. 
It's like a lull- <laughs> It's like a lullaby. You know, yes, at the beginning yes, yes. he can't sleep, and at the end he's sleeping like a baby. It's a it's go. a peaceful and reassuring story. Well, thank you, Pete. Excellent. I'm sorry I didn't mean to to prematurely rush you off stage, but uh, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm good. Okay, great. We have plenty uh, to talk about. Awesome. I have a uh, so I'm faking a nuclear accident so that you have to uh, evacuate the the podcast, and uh, Mark Lee can can take it down before I scuttle the ship. Um, Mark, uh, what is your, uh, Sean Connery, uh, memory? Well, uh, Pete, I'm glad you left, uh, Indiana Jones, the last crusade for me. Um, I was, uh, you know, between that and, uh, 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 Hunt for Red October, those are deeply, deeply impactful movies for me. Um, there's so many things to pick from, from last crusade, right? And what an iconic role. Um, but I'm going to go with, um, the, you know, the, the, the interesting pivot that, uh, Sean Connery's character, Dr. Jones, uh, has in the movie from just like burning with zeal for finding the grill when at the end turning to his son Indiana and says tells tells him let it go Indiana let it go um, and that kind of like balance right being able to kind of uh, you know know when it's time to move past something uh, is is good advice for a father to pass on down to his son um, I'm not going to say that you go so far as say like I learned that really from my dad um, but uh, maybe something that I'll pass on to my son um, you know, when I perhaps when uh, he is, um, you know, dangling from a precipice um, with an incredible holy artifact, just uh, mere fingertips away. I mean, who, who among us cannot relate to that? Are you talking about your son, Harper? Um, uh, <laughs> well, that that too, uh, the, the dog as well as my human child. Oh, I was giving you the setup, man. I was giving you the setup. I missed it. No, what was it, Pete? Finish we that. named the we dog named Harper. The dog oh, Harper. Oh, yes, of course. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I would have, and I would have piped in and replied, "Your son is named after the dog." <laughs> you were named after the dog. <laughs> you were named after the dog. Um, Gosh, well, you know, it's good thing we haven't done a Last Crusade podcast. It would just be us reciting all the lines. Yeah. In our in our various terrible Sean Connery, Harrison Ford, and uh, John Rhys Davies voices. Well, I mean, some people will be here for that. Don't get me wrong, but no, I will be there for that. I think we, it would be the same if we did a podcast about any Tom Stoppard work. It'd just I, be us reciting all our favorite lines in Sean Connery and Harrison Ford. Voices. Speaking <laughs> of reciting the lines of a Tom Stoppard play in a Sean Connery voice, I used to do that. My first uh, my first sort of professional job as an actor at a big theater was at Longworth Theater, where I was like an ensemble. I was a kind of glorified extra, like actually moderately glorified in that we were not uh, we were. Um, given union candidate union training weeks i think for doing it so we weren't uh we weren't just extras and we also like sang and danced and stuff like that didn't just just sit around and um that play uh the the first play that i did in it was 2005 it was it wasn't the first play i did it's the first thing i was involved with on that scale it was in 2005 it was tom stoppard's travesties and uh Travesties is a very, very long play. Uh, Pete, I, I suppose you're familiar with it. You must be. I saw you in it. Oh, did And you? I went backstage and hung out with you and, and uh, Sam Waterston uh, Sam <laughs> afterwards for a little bit. Yeah. He, so Sam Waterston played the, the lead in this play. Um, by the way, 
If you're ever wondering if Sam Waterston is the real deal, like 199%, that guy, like 5,000. He is an actual lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) He he is the district attorney. And not only that, his father Father is the district district attorney. We're getting very far afield. But uh, anyway, this play begins with a, I'm, I'm holding it in my hand, one, two, three, four, five... Uh, five printed pages in in a book in a like a published book. So it is something like eight or nine script pages, like manuscript pages in the in the script thing of him talking like flat out just talking. No, no one else on stage. It was about the first 15 minutes of the of the show and it was just him. And he came in on day one and it was nailed. It, there was none of this BS that you get sometimes where it's like, oh, I got to, you know, I have to do it a few times or I'll learn it through the repetition. No, it was like it was down. And, you know, one night um, we asked him like how, you know, why, that was amazing. Like how that was such an astonishing thing to witness. And he was like, yeah, but I do law and order. I have this this like page after page of nonsense to learn, uh, you know, every every week uh, for the decades that that he was involved in that show. And so that that skill was very sharp with him. Also, he uh, he picked up the bar tab a lot of times when we would all go out. <laughs> super decent, uh, super decent man. Um, and, uh, but it meant we all sat backstage a lot listening to him talk because this was not the only lengthy monologue that he had in the play. And so in order to pass the time doing this, we would play something called the Sean Connery game where we would say the things he was saying on stage at the time along with him, but in the voice of, of Sean Connery. So, uh, here, uh, is the beginning of uh, Carr's monologue in the, his first speech in Travesties uh, in the voice of Sean Connery. He was Irish, of course, though not actually from Limerick. He was a Dublin man, Joyce. Everybody knows that. Couldn't have written the book without. There was a young man from Dublin. Tum to the tum to the troublin. I used to have quite a knack for it, but... There's little encouragement for that sort of thing in the consular service. I uh, didn't discourage it, I'm not saying. On the contrary, most enlightened and cultivated body of men, fully sympathetic to all the arts. Anyway, that's not a, not um, and and then continues for another 15 minutes like that. And the the Sean Connery game. And I, what I realized then is that almost anything you say becomes funnier if said in the voice of of Sean Connery. For example, gush, stop harassing the cat. Or, uh, you know, uh, yes, I would like barbecue sauce on that. Or, you know, and just whatever whatever you care to say. And uh, anywhere and anytime you feel like paying tribute to, to Sean Connery, um, just uh, mimic his voice in uh, in any way you like, in any context that you like. At the... At the DMV, why, yes, I do wear contact lenses, you know, or, um, uh, you know, I, I will have the, the tagliatelle with snow peas, you know, anything you say will be, will be improved in, in that way. And, uh, in that way, the spirit and the memory of Sean Connery can, can be a blessing to you, uh, for many, many, many years to come. Now, um, he wasn't just a he wasn't just a noted orator. He was also an actor in several films. One of those films 
is a uh, is like a, a a bete noir that has um, that has haunted, has stalked this podcast for many many episodes, and I think now uh, it's time to lay that beast to rest by slicing off its head. Pete, can you explain to everybody what we are here to do? Here we are, <laughs> Mark and Matt. They finally watched Highlander. <laughs> here we belong. Bow, bow. Okay, okay, okay. Here I was thinking we'd do the entire episode doing Sean Connery voices, but it sounds like we're going to do it uh, in the voice of singing voice of Queen and Freddie Mercury instead. <laughs> Amazing! Okay, so, as, okay. Highlander, for the younger folks, Highlander may only be known to you from Talladega Nights, the ballad of Ricky Bobby, wherein uh, Will Ferrell's character tells Sasha Baron Cohen's character that when they're facing off and talking about uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's character wants wants Ricky Bobby to defeat him so he can retire, but he must be to a worthy adversary. He says he feels like he's in Highlander. And he's like, oh, what is that? It's a movie. Oh, is it a good movie? And he says, yeah, it's won the Academy Award. He said, for what? And it said for best 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 movie ever made. <laughs> oh, okay, I have to watch it. So uh, of course later he watches it and he's a little bit uh, less impressed than he might be. Um, Highlander is a movie that has been made into a franchise that has exploded across the minds of people about my age, uh, but strangely not Mark and Matt. Uh, it is an action fantasy sci-fi. Uh, movie from the mid 80s that was made into a fairly popular Euro Canadian America action television series um, and also into the similar television series, but with a female lead because they they anticipated the direction the wind was blowing well before anybody had hitched a sail to it. Uh, and uh, and also a variety of comic books. I think there's 10 novels. Uh, there's an animated, there's like an anime series, Japanese style animation. Uh, it is a whole big thing. And so I brought it up at times because references to Highlander, you, you feel like, to me, they have a currency, right? Oh, there's a whole Aqua Teen Hunger Force episode where they talk about Highlander all the time. It's in this big Will Ferrell movie, right? It's like, oh, there, you know, any video game you play well, not any, but a bunch of video games you play that might involve either sort of character classes or cards or other sorts of choices as to what you would play as. It might have a format called Highlander, which generally means there can be only one. And yet, and yet, Matt and Mark had never seen the movie or I think any of it. Right. You hadn't seen any of the TV shows, none of the movies, none of the, the commemorative CD-ROM from the Watchers that let you know everything the Highlanders have been doing. Uh, none of it, right? Correct. Fabulous. Right. This was the first time you're on the battlefield at Glenfinnan, struck down by the Kurgan, and you are waking to your new life, having seen uh, the Highlander or Highlander the movie. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar, Highlander the movie is uh, written. It was written by a college student <laughs> who was also a firefighter and went on to write the movie Backdraft as well as the movie The Prophecy, and is directed by, it is one of the earliest, I think, I think of it as one of the kind of foundational early action movies directed by a music video director, which I think is very apparent at various points in the movie. It is directed by uh, Russell, and what is his last name? Um, I had this written down. He's the guy who, he directed Video Killed the Radio Stars. The first 
video music video on MTV was directed by the guy who directed Highlander, uh, as well as the. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. M U L C A H Y. Yeah, Mulcahy, right? Um, And he also directed the lovingly absurd Total Eclipse of the Heart video with. uh, Oh, yeah. Oh, that explains a lot. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, 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 as a little bit of an aside. Bonnie Tyler, of course, has a wonderful song called Total Eclipse of the Heart, which is about, um, you know, uh, heartbreak and disaffection and and desperate yearning and, and kind of uh, aging and all sorts of other stuff that is going on. And it has a music video that's full of iconic moments that, when taken together, represent a grand absurdity. And a few years ago, at this point, probably a bunch of years ago, there was a thing called literal video where people uh, redubbed music videos with with somebody describing the things happening in the music video to the tune of the song that was played. Right. So it was like you're listening to somebody sing Total Eclipse of the Heart, except they're they're the lyrics have been changed to tell you what's happening in the video. So I think at one point he goes, Arthur Fazzarelli has hundreds of clones, right? Because there's crazy, there's a bunch of ble- uh, greasers running up a staircase, uh, you know, to a woman, you know, in, in, a, in a ghost dress with a smoke machine and all this other stuff. So, so Highlander is this, it's, it is, it is inspired by a, um, a Ridley Scott film called The Duelist starring Harvey Keitel in which two men uh, who have an enmity for each other that is manifested in a series of duels that has fought over an extended period of time. And so uh, that and also inspired by history, by the not not necessarily just history in general as a sort of thing in its own terms, but encountering history the way that a man of a certain age encounters history. That is through museum exhibits of arms and armor, right? As in like, oh, we're in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. All this stuff is boring. Let's go look at the arms and armor, right? Uh, Which is an experience I had when I was a little boy. I don't know if you guys ever had it, but it's a sort of- As a 35-year-old man, yes, perhaps. (laughs) It is delightful, right? It is a sort of fantasia of martial historical identity and the, the broader franchise is, right? And it is also- a take on vampires and angels. I mean, if it sounds so the, the, the director that you're probably being reminded of, as I say, all these things is probably Michael Bay, right. Who is also a music video director who also not only comes from music videos, but from, you know, very theatrical, grandiose, often either hard rock or kind of uh soaring meatloafian ballad kind of music videos, which is, you know, we're, we're talking Russell, Russell uh, Mulcahy did stuff for ACDC, Right. And and uh, and a whole bunch of it has a real heavy metal aesthetic to it. Uh, the gist, right, is that you're taking you have a new sort of living in the shadows, immortal figure who can still be killed. Right. Akin to a vampire or uh, an elf in Tolkien. Right. They live in the woods. They live forever, but they're very sad because they lost something beautiful at one point and they rarely come out to fight. But when they do, it's a very serious thing. Right. I mean, you could compare them to angels. You could compare them to uh, to like the mummy. Right. And that there's an ancient curse from a faraway land, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But the gist of it is that you have these 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 warriors, these mostly in in this movie, they're all swordsmen. And there's only really like five or six of them in this movie. But there's many, many, many of them over the 140 episodes of the two television shows 
and all the other stuff, right? There's, the there's extended, all sorts. The Highlander Extended Universe. Yes, the Highlander Extended Universe is populated with every period piece you can imagine done as cheaply as possible, right? There are so many smoke machines next to Napoleonic cannons, you would not believe it, right? Uh, it is, it is, uh, there's so many makeout scenes with European actresses playing somebody wearing a corset, right? It is that like, way, I mean, it's, it's akin to Doctor Who. In that, in that yes, w- yes, yes. And you can make an argument that that the late 80s uh, are that there are two big Scottish themed cultural phenomena that come out of the late 80s into the early 90s that are involved time traveling Scotsmen. And you could argue that that's because Doctor Who introduced time traveling Scotsmen in 1969 and had brought them back. In uh, in a ser- in some series in the eighties, there's a Doctor Who character who is a time traveling Scotsman, and in in the Hi- in the Highlander uh, or in Highlander, as it were, the Scotsman travels through time in his memory. Right, you, the the events are happening in the present day, but he can flash back to any period he's been to, which is all the periods he's been everywhere, he's done everything. The other one, of course, there is Highlander, and then there is Outlander, uh, which we may get to at another time, uh, and I suspect uh, I I suspect offers something of a counterpoint. To Highlander, uh, though I suspect also that people who like Outlander would resent my association of the two to one another. Um, <laughs> but but Highlander is a kind of historiographical movie wherein these swordsmen who can live forever. You basically you're a warrior on the battlefield and you die and then you wake up and you realize that you're immortal. Right. And you've had this death in battle, but now you can't die through conventional means. But you're not alone. There's other men like you out there. And they yes, they, eventually there will be other women like you out there, too, uh, mostly in the television. Series. So, you, so you're saying um, it's an allegory for homosexuality in the 1980s. Uh, well, it's in everything right? in in New York, right? Because <laughs> the point is that you have to not you you have to not uh, you have to protect the women, not be involved with them, you know, protect them, but be penetrated by men. And that right. uh, actually, when you can have successfully a, a relationship with a woman, is when she stabs you in the chest. It is it is easy to understand why you would see this movie as gay because it is European. Uh, <laughs> No, no, no. That is a legit thing to bring up. And they bring it up in the movie multiple times in very unkind ways. Uh, And, um, you know, the idea, I mean, Queen does most of the songs that you hear in in the movie. But I would also say that it is difficult to to attribute, at least to the original Highlander, a coherent intention, because part of the miracle of what happens with this movie. And I do want to pause soon to let to hear what you guys have to say about it, because. You know, I grew up mostly with series and I went back and watched the movies and some of them are really bad and some of them are are good, I think. Um, But I'm curious. Right. In general, I think the series uh, holds up better for what it is than the movies generally do. Uh, But um, uh, but, you know, for all that. Right. Um, the, The original movie is a hodgepodge of like several different big opinions of what the movie should be about. The original screenplay is not that much like what happens in the movie. Uh, And the original screenplay is kind of a meditation on love and and loss and kind of stripping away your personality. It's it's it is similar for those of you who are familiar with, uh, say, Vampire the Masquerade. Right. (laughs) The notion that over time or even even interview with the vampire, the the sort of Anne Rice and sort of adjacent 90s vampire stories where by committing acts of cruelty and violence, the vampires lose their grip on their humanity until they become nothing but beasts. And and if usually a story like that follows a young vampire who is determined to hold on to their humanity despite the temptations to do all these terrible things, you know, like Brad Pitt's character in Interview with the Vampire, um, and is sort of tempted and also 
uh, devastated by various things that happen over this sort of interminable course of time and uh, and a life full of loss. The Highlander is like it was originally going to be much more like that. Uh, but it is made by a, a, a studio that is trying to cut every corner possible and is also trying to make it like kick butt. Right. And so like it has like, you know, and it's being directed by a music video director. Right. So like, oh, you know, the the villain who was simply a, a medieval knight who had no purpose in life other than death and was sort of a relentless killing machine becomes the Kurgan, an ancient barbarian from the Russian steppe with like, you know, with safety pins holding his throat closed and like shaving his head with his broadsword as he like taunts uh, taunts full churches with uh, Bob Dylan lyrics, I think. I'm not sure. Um, you know, you have you have a, a scene in this movie where the Kurgan, you know, kidnaps uh, an art curator and drives across the Queensboro Bridge, speeding in a in a, I think a Buick or a Cadillac in the rain to a blazing cacophonous alt cover version of like New York, New York. Right? Like it's a. Uh, this is a movie where a man swings a sword and a, and a wall explodes, and this happens more than once. Um, it is there is a there is a kind these of swords, magic. Pete, these swords are are potent. <laughs> yes, the Downton Abbey movie moment of this movie is when Christopher Lambert, aka Connor McLeod of the Clan McLeod, the Highlander, born in, in the village of Glenfiddich in fifteen what's he what's uh, he cannot die. He is immortal. Turns to his adopted Holocaust survivor daughter, who is now visibly older than him. Uh, to comfort her in his uh, as she fears for his life as he goes to fight the Kirk. And he says, you know, remember, it's a kind of magic. <laughs> right? that, that's what this movie is. It's a kind of magic. What kind? Well, that's up to you. That's up to you, Dolomite. Or that's up to you, uh, Rambo. Right. Uh, to determine uh, to determine what kind of magic it is. But it is it is, uh, I think, an example of luck. As much as anything that that all of these different uh, influences and impetuses, right, this sort of uh, the um, the 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 post Jacobian fascination with chivalric romance. Right. And Ivanhoe, which has also been uh, been attributed to the Confederacy. Right. There is a Confederate flag very early in this movie uh, in a sort of fitting place during a kind of montage uh, takedown of humanity's insatiable lust for war, right? Where it's like it, it intercuts between a, a bloody and savage battle in the Scottish Highlands and a pro wrestling match at Madison Square Garden. I will as all say, of humanity kind of cheers violence and sweaty men. I will know, say, get, Pete, especially with the the Sean Connery narrated, and and we have to get around to him, by the way. But like oh, the yeah, Sean Connery, Sean Connery's in movie. <laughs> he is also in this yes. film. Um, the the since the dawn of time style narration. I was yeah. settling in for some like some historical or some kind of epic thing. I did not expect to be thrust into the middle of a uh, into the middle of a, a pro wrestling match in Madison Square Garden as the first thing that happens. In the well, film. in that way, the movie is priming you to be jarred repeatedly, repeatedly by nonsensical cuts. I will say, though, it's a nice touch in that in that pro wrestling sequence uh, to pick off of that. Uh, before we jump on to something else, is that um, uh, you know he, he's he's in the pro wrestling match for reasons that aren't aren't explained at all, and he's just like he looks disgusted at the whole thing, yes. right? And around him, everybody's super into it, and he just like kind of like head up picks up with a huff and 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 walks away, you know, brooding and thinking deep thoughts about uh, um, about clearly more important things. And he steps on a coke can, and very clearly on the coke can is the tagline from the time: "The real thing." You guys notice that? <laughs> <Huh>? Yeah. <laughs> 
This isn't a movie in which they don't pay attention to details, to no, be clear. No. It, it is borderline nonsense, as you described, Pete, and it is just like, you know, full of coherent things like mushed together, uh, but it does have fun details like that. Um, yeah. I think it's a very smart movie, but I think it's a movie that gets periodically interrupted and like and like thrown in this direction or thrown in that direction or like oh we can't shoot here we have to shoot there oh we have to do a scene that has this in it and so yeah, on and so Pete a little yeah. bit you're true highlandering right like that's uh like well the the parts of the movie that make sense are the actual movie right and the the, well, the parts it's of, what I, I mean the parts of the movie that I like are the are the actual movie right <laughs> no 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 you know what I I will say I mean I like the Chronicles of Riddick too which is also a very similar movie yeah. um. In the sense that, I mean, I also was an improv comic, you Wait, know, for Pete, many when you, years. When you say you like the Chronicles of Riddick 2, do you mean as opposed to the Chronicles of Riddick 1? Ah, I, uh, but the Chronicles of Riddick 2 is the Chronicles of Riddick 2, <laughs> exactly. right? Because the Chronicles of Riddick 1 is pitch black. Pitch black. <laughs> <laughs> but, but this notion that that if you were to sand down the edges of this movie to make it more refined, I think that it would lose some of the moments of power that are energizing and electrifying for perhaps the young people who watched it back when it had some currency. I don't know if it would invigorate audiences today at all, but I will say this. Uh, If you know nothing else artistically about the Highlander, and we've already kind of told you the general premise is that these guys have to cut off each other's heads with swords. And if you do, you get their power. And and the, the movie doesn't really go into this, but you know, oh, you're supposed to get their power, and there's a big lightning storm. That's the that's and the you have big, a, and you, ha- you know, and you have a totally have an orgasm. Yes, and there's totally this exultant uh, sort of counter counter reformational uh, moment of clarity that you get in the form of a of a sexual a sexual uh, 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 you know um, uh, you thing o face. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but I will say that if you know nothing stylistically about the movie other than this. It's that uh, the the opening narration by Sean Connery, right, who is in this movie, shawning the F out of a Connery like no Connery has ever been shawned, right? He has a cape of peacock feathers in this movie and a jaunty purple hat, right? Um, Burgundy, perhaps. Uh, he delivers this monologue, right, which has weird echoey effects to it and seems to have some sort of mysterious otherworldly quality. This is because it was recorded in his bathroom and it was only played for the filmmakers over the phone. So they didn't know that it was a low quality recording until they already had to incorporate it into the movie. So that is that is a happy accident that Sean Connery's voice sounds like that. But Sean Connery gives this opening narration. Uh, and it's so it's similar in this respect to uh, Conan the Barbarian. Where I think it's Burgess, is it is it Burgess Meredith who gives the initial, uh, or is it the guy who played Mako who gives the initial narration to Conan the Barbarian, right? Um, you know, uh, okay. age, you know, it's it's uh, trod the thrones below his sandaled feet, right? Uh, and, and it goes right into Basil Polidorus's like ba 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 da ba 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 ba. The credits, the opening credits to the movie Highlander are text on a background in a bad font that you can't read very well. Uh-huh. It is dark red text in a serif font on a black background. It is started off with a recording that Sean Connery did in his own bathroom. And it immediately with no visual element whatsoever, other than what I've described blasts into a full on queen song that plays for the entire duration of the utterly boring credits. And it is, and it is a kick ass moment. It is like, 
it, it is confounding and bizarre and pointless and powerful and energizing. And, and there's all these, it, it's like, it makes promises. It doesn't even know how to say, right. Is, is the, uh, the opening credits to Highlander. Um, and it is so strange, right? I mean, did that strike you guys as strange that the opening credits had no visual accoutrement? There's not even pictures. There's not even like a picture of, of, a, of a place in Scotland over the credits. It's just like somebody, like typeset them. And it's put more. Them on my the, assumption was that they they ran out of budget uh, yeah. shooting the rest of the movie and then just had to throw this together at the very last minute. No, and so that's based more on the, based on the the insane effects that I saw later on uh, in the movie. I think that might actually be true. <laughs> they really went all out with the uh, particularly with the with the climactic sword fight at the end. Yeah, they sort of do it last, I guess, especially if it's not like laid over a, a thing. But like that's also just that's just conventional. I think a lot of movies just put the put the credits um in front and just cards text on text on screen but but the but the blazing screaming hard glam rock that goes over it felt notable to for the, me for the, the kids yeah a good good point you know any point any so what do you think of of highlander uh of course the winner of the academy award for for best movie ever made <laughs> I mean, that might be a little bit, a slight exaggeration that it was the best movie ever made. It, it is highly notable, highly entertaining. Uh, as I, I think we just said before, borderline incoherent. Absolutely. Um, so that's kind of just my, my high-level take on it. Um, I think my expectation, based on the little snippets that I'd heard from you, Pete, and what I heard from Ricky Bobby, um, were for some, definitely for something more more conventional Maybe that's just because my imagination could not have possibly concocted the craziness that that that, that I saw in in this. So I think my main takeaway is that they don't make them like they used to. In other <laughs> words, like you know, this is a this is an outre, like very artistic movie with takes a lot of creative risks and does a lot of crazy things. And uh, you know, the 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 uh, very risk averse. Uh, filmmaking that you know kind of took hold, I guess probably, I guess you you could argue in the '90s beyond, um, would just would not allow for 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 that for this sort of thing. Um, I, let me, I don't know, like a, a good way to describe my feelings in this is like uh, one particular scene, and, and since we've you know paying tribute to Sean Connery, let's let's pick the Sean Connery scene, which is that you know he's he's having a sword fight. It's the big sword fight with him and the Kurgan, uh, the big evil guy, right? Um, there he is uh, having dinner with the main character's wife and there's no explanation at all. So why the main character isn't there. And there's no suggestion, by the way, there's any, you know, like any, uh, anything sexual going on no. there. Um, but you have this kind of like, you know, uh, story element that is not spoken to and is not addressed in any way. They're in this like medieval Gothic, uh, silo castle thing. It's a soundstage. It's a medieval it, it soundstage. It is a highly improbable structure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you soon find out that its purpose is to have a, I think we can call it a pretty epic sword fight, right, between Sean Connery and, and the Kurgan, uh, in which uh, the two of them ascend up the silo's, uh, you know, stone staircase. And um, and this is the, the one of the main scenes, which uh, we mentioned before, in which as the Kurgan is hacking away with the sword, as the sword hits stone, it makes the stones explode. <laughs> this is not explained in any way. You're just supposed to kind of sit back and take it in and say, this is awesome. And right. you know what? In retrospect, it was. You know, so I just I reeled off many, many, many things that like don't make sense that are not set up that, uh, uh, and that don't they frankly don't really pay off uh, so much 
later on in the movie, but you just take it all in as this like crazy visceral experience and um and and, and have a good time. That's and not very overthinking it, I, I guess. Like cognac appreciation scenes too. <laughs> yes. So, so that's not a very overthinking it approach, right? It's, it's like you know, it's just like it, it affects like kind of the body and the and, and the heart as as opposed to the head. Um, so maybe I'll toss it over to you, Matt, to kind of like just get a little bit. Like, uh, yes, yes, for here. a for a bloodless analysis of all the. <laughs> yes, please. You know. By the, the way, this is a movie that Gene Siskel called maybe the worst movie I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Hated it. Um, <laughs> so if you know you, a damnation of no less than that, right, uh, is to be respected. So I think like one one way into talking about this for me is thinking about why on earth it seems so unconcerned with world building, right? Like it it seems like a sort of succession of sensation you know like awesome sensation like we're we're going to just take the awesomeness meter and and crank it up as high as we possibly can like when when um when we go to uh uh when when he finally defeats the the kurgan um and he is requickening he is even quicker and uh, he uh he is surrounded by an awesome heavy metal dragon who, you know, sort of dances around and like is him and is within him and sort of eats him and poops him out, but sort of like, uh, becomes him and like he, you know, and he is all things and he knows all things, but he's also simultaneously like experiencing a kind of death of self and, uh, a sort of promotion to, uh, to omniscient everybody, but, uh, also a demotion from being, um, you know, from being, uh, uh, immortal. So there's a whole, you know, there's a whole lot going on and that this is like, this is expressed in something that looks like a, a heavy metal cartoon, you know? Um, and that's, that's like, th- that's sort of trying to like, le- okay, let's have a great sword fight, you know? And how do we, uh, how do we like raise the stakes, right? The, the sword fight Mark is talking about this master swordsman, Sean Connery, who's, you know, um, uh, who is supposed to be an Egyptian, uh, you know, uh, metallurgist who at the time is working in Spain in the, the, the Spanish court as the metallurgist to the king of Spain. And he um, is fighting the uh, legendary warrior, right? Uh, the, the Kurgan, you, you know, how can we make it clear that this is a big consequential moment? Well, let's blow up the house. Yeah, but they're fighting with uh, they're fighting with swords. Nah, j- just blow up. Uh, it's stone. It you know the force of their the force of their mighty blows is so powerful that the the stones themselves uh, explode. As though terrified of the you know the the force on display in this uh, clash of titans. So right, that's that's where that's where it's happening. It does not seem that interested in forging a coherent mythology. Right. And that the, the mythology such as it is, you know, there's some I think there's some big ideas. Pete, I think you're right to call it an investigation of the kind of the martial spirit. Uh, and, and it's very male. It's a, it doesn't have a ton of time for for women and their concerns um, for, you know, it doesn't have a ton of time for domesticity. It certainly doesn't have any time for child rearing. Um, you know, Not that those are the concerns of women. 
But, I mean, it has a fair amount of time for antique art curation, which is also a province of one of the fem- of the main female characters. She, she's a for- no. forensic. She's a police officer. But, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh, she lies. That's right. Yeah, but it's, the, it's really easy to lose track of what the characters actually do in this movie, uh, like who they are and what they do, because they jump back and forth between doing different things very drastically. Sorry. Yeah. So she's a police so, officer who pretends to be an art curator for the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, and, so, and, and, sure, just, and she's just, mostly, yeah. And she's, mo- uh, she's mostly just a, she's mostly just a Highlander stan, you know? Yeah, pretty that, much. I mean, that's, it's, it's, it is one of the regrettable things about this movie that I think that they, I mean, they have so many chances in the Highlander to address any sort of concern. It's like, oh man, I wish there was a Highlander story that did X. I'll tell you, they did it, right? <laughs> it's out there somewhere. And if they haven't done it yet, write someone a letter, they'll do it. Right. You know, they'll, they'll do the whole they, In fact, they probably haven't done a full on LGBT Highlander. And why not? Right. Because uh, they've done everything else but that, to, to milk this franchise. But, you know, I, I I'm sort of speaking in terms of the movie, yeah. what it in terms of the movie, which is it, it's hard for me to, to, to narrow my Highlander experience down to just this movie. But I'll do my best. Right. Uh, and, yeah. and so, like, it, it really is concerned with the the. um you know, with the experiences of dudes in either leather or trench coats skulking around the alleys of New York at night and and not, you know, not with anything that actually might sort of nourish or perpetuate humanity down uh, down through the ages. But like an investigation of the kind of the martial quality uh, specifically of America, because a lot of it like there is a Revolutionary War uh, adjacent scene. There is a World War Two scene. And so there's um uh, there's a uh i think i think you're right to call it that i think that's what it is um philosophically sort of sort of interested in and it's not really it's not really interested in this kind of world building in this you know i don't know i associate it with george r r martin but it's probably more accurate to say j r r tolkien kind of level of fantasy world building of you know having a totally coherent kind of historical system which you can enter into at any number of points and and tell a bunch of stories right and so it's very um I mean, I guess it's it's a testament to the to the strength of the original premise that it ended up being this occasion for, uh, you know, a huge build out of an extended universe. Right. And that like because that seems not where the where the films, this film, Highlanders films heart is, first of all, if you wanted to build out an extended universe around this whole thing, you wouldn't call it Highlander. Because Highlander is one guy, you know, yeah. right? Like, and his story is kind of complete. I mean, I guess like, I guess like you get, you know, Highlander, Highlander two, the Professor X years, right? But that oh man, you haven't even let's talk Highlander <laughs> two. That might be a peak cast. I might have to watch <laughs> Highlander two again and just do a members only Highlander two because it is legitimately one of the worst movies ever made, if not the worst movie ever made. So, and it's amazing that the this franchise survived and continued past it. But sorry, go on. Go D- on. Does Sean Connery return? Yes, as an alien. They're all aliens. <laughs> what? There's a very famous what? scene where he talks to a ceiling fan. It's a very strange movie made during the Argentinian economic collapse in Argentina, where apparently like the like production company and the like the people on set like seized the movie and like did a whole bunch of crazy crap. But no, it basically attempts to retcon all the events of the of Highlander as being the result of aliens. 
Uh, and uh, which which future future and uh, incidences of uh, future entries into the franchise in almost entirely ignore it. They just don't they pretend like it's not there. Um, it like, is it is a crazy ass movie. It is <laughs> like the, uh, the, 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 the bad quarto of Hamlet. It's just let's not even let's not even deal with. <laughs> yeah, I would say it's about on par with Hamlet, you know, but not great. <laughs> like bad Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> um so that i mean right like it is it is interesting it is interesting to me and it is a good way of kind of like understanding what is going on with this this movie that like this is a movie with sort of that ended up in this world domination right like that ended up in a in a you know extended universe style franchise um heavy heavy mythology where the film is actually not interested in an extended universe style franchise heavy mythology and and is instead uh interested in you know uh christopher i i suppose i should say lambert um i've been uh, americanizing his name as i've been reading about it in my you know as i've heard it in my own uh in my own head well christopher lambert is terrible at americanizing himself so you don't have to do it for him <laughs> uh he <laughs> or um, scottishizing himself even yeah it's uh, like i do like there is a great moment at the beginning it's like uh wait, what is that accent where are you from and he's, he's more or less like I, don't worry about it it's from a, a lot of places. A lot of, lot of places. <laughs> just, don't, <laughs> just don't don't worry about it. Um, that like, uh, yeah, that he and by the way, he kind of looks like Thomas Jane, doesn't he? Thomas Jane kind of looks like him. Oh, yeah. fair enough. As, uh, but yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. I've, I've seen that su- suggested that if oh man, if you were to bring him back, you should put Thomas Jane in the role because Thomas Jane kind of looks like him. Kind of looks yeah. like him. Yeah. The yeah, son of son of Highlander, slightly less Highlander. Um, yeah, so that, uh, you know, it's sort of an interesting thing. Let's, I mean, let's sort of briefly talk about, talk about Sean Connery because I think like there are things you said, Pete, he is Connerying, uh, harder than anyone has ever shunned. And that's, um, I, I think that's accurate. And his phenomenal success (laughs) at, (laughs) at being in this movie, (laughs) right? Like, is I think actually provides a decent way into talking about what what uh, made Sean Connery great. So like let's uh, I don't know do do you Pete I want to kind of throw back to you. So do you have any thoughts about Sean Connery in in this movie that might uh, serve to kick us off? Sure. So the gist, as I, I said, the the surface level gist of Highlander, right, is that it's these swordsmen who go around chopping each other's heads off. But the character gist of Highlander is that these people, they live for a really long period of time. They have real trouble making relationships. They have real trouble making friends because their friends all die and they watch people get old. It's really sad. And uh, and also they can't really be friends with each other. Uh, they, they sort of can, but they also can't because they know eventually they have to kill each other because there can be only one. Right. And so. It, it's sort of an existential question. Peter, are, there to, any, are there any codicils or like, uh, you know, fine print on that? There can be only one sort of dictum like. Oh, yeah. To- I mean, they had to make another Highlander movie. So, yes, they <laughs> they have a lot of provisos that are attached to that. There is a lot of there are many, many, many different ways in which that premise is interrogated in the various Highlander properties. OK, uh, got one it. notable one is in Highlander Endgame where a bunch of the immortals choose to try to confound 
the uh, this sort of overall game that they've all been part of by permanently sealing themselves in sen- sensory deprivation coffins, uh, basically like taking on a voluntary death in order to uh, shrug off immortality without actually giving the prize to anyone. Um, Highlander Endgame is not as good as that premise sounds. Uh, it, it does have a guy who has crosses on his shoes, though, um, and you only see them from the back. Sounds kind of like um, that, uh, that, you know, um, what's his name? That Ryan Reynolds movie where he's in a coffin the whole time? Or- oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. <laughs> it's, it's, the Star Trek, it's the Star Trek generations of Highlander where, oh, like, okay. the old Highlander and the new Highlander meet and all that stuff. But no, so Sean Connery comes on the scene to attack the problem of how these folks relate to each other. How can you relate to anyone when you are doomed to murder or be murdered by anyone that you that would ever understand you? Right. And uh, and Sean Connery approaches it, uh, you know, by walking up to somebody and saying, well, hello, <laughs> right? like, like I am I am I am I am loving life. I am loving you. I'm asking your name. I legitimately care about you. I'm interested. Uh, you know, we're both here. Uh, hey, let's be friends, right? I mean, it, it, it sort of makes sense that fictional Will Ferrell character love the Highlander because it's very much like Step Brothers, right? Where it's like, did we just become best friends? Like, yes, we did, right? Um, it's that Sean Connery shows up in a scenario that should be utterly and completely troubling in a situation that should be seen as, you know, I am extremely skeptical that the thing you're describing to me is really happening, but does it in a way that inspires total confidence in his good intentions, right? And, in, oh, and of you, course, you left out the part where he comes in and interrupts the main character having sex with his wife. That's yeah, I forgot about that part. That's how crazy Highlander is. Is that I forgot that in the scene where Sean Connery walks in in a peacock cape with a purple hat to introduce himself as an Egyptian metallurgist from Spain with a Scottish accent to a man he's never met but has apparently been tracking across the seas, right? Uh, he does it while walking in on the act, like in coitus, you know, flagrante or whatever, right? Like uh, in Highlander flagrante uh, <laughs> and is, and is totally unperturbed by it. Right. Uh, it's just like, Oh, hi, you know, like uh, didn't see you there. Trebek. Uh, <laughs> um, he is, he is similar. He has a, he has a Carl Weathersian presence. I would say uh, it's similar to in, um, the latter Rocky movies, like I'm thinking in particular of Rocky, I guess this would be Rocky three where Apollo has to like get Rocky going again uh, to fight Clubber Lang and they run in the surf. Or is that, is that, I think that's in Rocky three. Right. And it's sort of like, why is rock, why are Rocky and Apollo Creed friends? Because they've mostly just been engaged in business exchanges where they beat each other up. But Carl Weathers just sells it so well. Right. Um, I mean, I'm reminded of the Mandalorian, which we should also talk about at some point, right? Which is just sort of like, oh, this is it's this guy, right? Except, except Sean oh, Connery yeah, yeah. is on no, the he's, level. He's, right? he's 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 uh, he's caroling har- harder than ever a Carl has ever ever weathered. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like Carl that- Weathers as himself in Arrested Development is like the kind of energy that <laughs> Sean Connery is bringing to the Highlander with a peacock cape and sword fighting. Right. It's uh, it's this like, what doesn't everyone like me? Of course they do. Like, I don't even entertain the possibility that you don't like me. But it's, right? like, I mean, I, it's got yeah. it's got an interesting relationship to like and I'm thinking also now of Bond a little bit of of like 
you know, feats of strength, of kind of physical adventurousness, of of masculinity, of, you know, and as he aged, the relationship sort of changed, like, uh, you know, like Captain Ramius in Hunt for Red October was a little more mellow, but you get the feeling that, you know, he was a wild guy in his youth, you know what I mean? Like that he could, you know, that he could do some damage, uh, much like um, Ambassador Villalobos or what a metallurgist courtier, you know, Sir Villalobos, right? Like that uh, in Ramirez, right? Ramirez. Oh, I thought oh, it he was... has a lot of names. He's <laughs> generally referred to as Ramirez, oh, right? Uh, but I guess I don't know what you would refer to him as. Because he he you you only have the movie to go from and the movie doesn't really I guess it's yeah Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez oh uh, yeah. Villalobos Ramirez sorry yeah. I was I was doing the wrong parent's name right yeah. the uh, <laughs> the um you know the whole uh, you know the the whole thing is that like he can sort of he's he doesn't have to there's such a there's such a glee i i guess is what is what i mean to say like there's such joy like whether he's like galloping on a horse through the surf along the coast right or they're just like legit chasing a deer you know they'd strip down to their shirts and like uh chase a uh big stag through the highlands right like that that uh there's there's such a a sort of joy to that coupled with a a a sort of right like and which i suppose you could call cool right that that it's like don't get off balance don't overextend yourself don't you know don't lose your your sort of poise don't lose your your fighting advantage through self-control um and through being a little bit uh detached but also the relish you know with which he tears into you know tears into a race or tears into a sword fight or something like that the kind of the physical commitment and the kind of the combination of those two things i think is is special right because you can think of you can think of actors who are like really intense or really super physical tom cruise comes to mind with the like the t2 uh the sorry the yeah the t2 t1000 um you know blade arms running like pumping furiously by his side as he he sprints along uh, at nearly superhuman speeds, right? And then there are actors who are, you know, who are cool. And, you know, for, for that, you can think of like, I don't know, the dude in The Big Lebowski or something like that. But like the idea of... um the the combination of the the sort of the physical relish and the kind of jumping into things as well as the the poise and the the slight detachment um but kind of a wry uh pleasurable detachment right like um you know not a not a fearful or defensive type of detachment you know that that uh was a was a really winning really sort of charming and uh i think unique combination it was definitely a it was definitely a a Sean Connery combination and like and it was maintained the cool was maintained no matter how flamboyant you know the the peacock cape the <laughs> the single pearl earring teardrop giant teardrop <laughs> pearl earring um, looking like that, looking like that painting, you know, <laughs> <laughs> giant, the size of a, you know, I don't know, the size of a fig or something like the, the pearl earring, um, I, it was, uh, it was neat to see sort of Sean Connery in, in the full glory of Sean Connery-ness and, and, you know, for me, sort of a fitting tribute to him that we did it this way, uh, this week. Right, right. I mean, Mark, what did you think of Sean Connery in this movie? 
I guess just to tack on what uh, uh, Matt was talking about in terms of the the, the cool uh, that he portrayed in this, right? Uh, one of my one of my favorite scenes in this movie um, uh, that wasn't an action scene, scene at least, was when uh, everybody's kind of hanging out in the village um, and all you know of uh, uh, McClough's Scots new uh, Scott Scottish neighbors are just milling about in their drab uh, browns and, and and green kilts and things like that. And and Sean Connery, just Ramirez, is just walking around la da in his ridiculous outfit, right? Uh, and also with his, by the way, with his Japanese sword, his katana blade. <laughs> um, and it, it is not remarked upon. Um, you know, nobody gawks at it. He just is. He just carries it. Um, that that's it's a good encapsulation of how like Connery t- totally sells it. And how this movie just does not care that that is like one of the, uh, that is a totally ridiculous thing that we're looking upon. Um, speaking of totally ridiculous things that that uh, we look upon in this movie, can we talk for a moment about the utterly bizarre and insane cinematography and editing? <laughs> yes. Right. Okay. So for those who haven't seen this, right, um, the camera work in this movie is. I mean, notable isn't even like getting getting closer, right? It just like goes all out. You know, we, we said many times right, that this is directed by someone whose previous experience was in music videos, and it really, really shows. Um, every opportunity to cut to a different angle is taken. I think it's fair to say, right? Um, and maybe those who have kind of you know more uh, kind of uh, competent technical vocabulary to describe what's going on here, right? Like, like when you're shooting a scene in a in a movie, you know, you you kind of you know cut back and forth between maybe a couple of different viewpoints, and everything is kind of like you know you you're really not going out of way to jar the viewer, but you are definitely trying to cut to get your point across. In this movie, like there's a hospital scene where the the, the cops go visit someone uh, in a hospital, who by the way is a Vietnam vet with PTSD. Who has who has tons of guns and just like shows up uh, and and stumbles across a high under sword fight um, <clears throat> for uh, reasons that are not at all like kind of explained or set up in this movie. Anyway, he's in the hospital um, because he witnessed the quickening and it was it took uh, oh he got stabbed as well too. Um, uh, it, it cuts every which way, including like an overhead shot of the of the hospital room. Um, Again, without any apparent reason for doing so, other than what we said before, which is like the you know, a huge impetus of this movie is just make it look awesome. And so the director seems to have done that very literally. Um, is is that a fair way to describe what's going on with the camera work? Or I don't know, is, is it trying to uh, explore the intricacies of the Highlander experience by uh, overloading things with Dutch angles? It's interesting. Um, I mean, Matt, I don't know if you you saw in much specifics about the camera work, but one scene that I think if you really wanted to look at the kind of aesthetic sense of, of Highlander, the church scene, I think, is a good one. The one where uh, the Kurgan comes to the church, because one of the rules of the immortals that is not explained in this movie in sufficient detail at all is that they don't fight each other on holy ground. Right. Uh, for whatever reason, it's a it's a rule they don't violate. And so McLeod goes to a church and the Kurgan comes to a church and the Kurgan basically trash talks him and says horrible things to him and challenges him to a fight and then leaves. And and you you go from like shot of like long shot of altar boys, right? Medium three quarter shot of Christopher Lambert at the pew cut immediately to directly behind him. Right. Uh, from far away, the Kurgan shows up only at ass level. 
huge in close up, right? Walks down, uh, you know, and walks down tracking shot to the Kurgan putting out a bunch of offertory candles with his bare hands, right? You know, cut to some nuns talking, cut to an old lady talking, cut to the Kurgan's butt, which is covered in chains and fishnets and leather as he's walking up the, the church steps, right? There's a lot of cuts that are almost 180 degrees, right? You go right from the Kurgan's butt to the Kurgan's face. Oh, no, you pan up from the Kurgan's butt to McLeod's face, and then you turn around to uh, looking at McLeod over the Kurgan's shoulder. Then you cut back to looking at the Kurgan over McLeod's shoulder. And at some point in that, the Kurgan sits down. Then he starts making licky faces at two nuns that are going by, right? It's like... There's a combination of things that are symbolically in montage provocative to the he, point. He, li- he, licks, yep. he licks a priest. He does lick a priest on the hand, which I've heard described as funny in Europe uh, and not funny in America. <laughs> Apparently it's a joke. I don't get it. Uh, but it, I mean, it just comes off as super gross and intimidating. Right. Which I think makes sense. Um, but what I'm describing is that there are things that sort of symbolically are over the top provocative, but there's also like filmic technique that's being stretched past the point. Right. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking in this one, it's just how many times the camera ends up kind of spinning around them and and they don't do sort of shot counter shot. They just don't. It's like, it's like front shot, back shot over the shoulder, over this way. Right. You're spinning like 160 degrees or 195 degrees with each shot. So you're not quite going directly 180, 180, which you definitely don't want to do. Uh, but but you're not doing much better than that. And and there's also a lot of vertical space that gets elided, right? Like the Kurgan is standing up and McLeod is sitting down. The McLeod is standing up and the Kurgan is sitting down. But the Kurgan looks like he's looking up because it's being shot from on top of him or beneath him. And then there's a priest who is like over the Kurgan, but it's shot from the perspective that the priest is beneath him because the camera is looking at the ceiling. And it's just like there's just all this geometric disorientation in a scene that's mostly just exposition. It's just basically like, I mean, there is a sort of character moment here, but they're basically saying, hey, we're going to have a big sword fight. Right. Like, that's what's going to happen. And uh, and the camera is just is just uh, it's just straining everything. Right. It's just pushing everything out. I think this director actually invented some some of the crazy music video camera techniques that got used a lot in the 80s. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know how many of them are used in this movie. But I mean, Matt, from your cinematographic perspective, I mean, the, the one moment that stuck out to me is when the movie seamlessly pans from like. The 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 charred shell of a Jewish house in the Holocaust to like a a mirror in a quiet talkie scene in New York City in the present day, like using this really cool kind of shadow cut where the shadow of the bureau becomes the wall of the burning house or or the Nazi infested house. Yeah, there's a lot Um, of stuff like that that sort of graphic match. I, yeah, I, yeah. Think, I don't know. It's been a minute. I think that's what it's called, where like um, another one that happens is you pan to his uh, you pan to Lumbert's fish tank and then uh, suddenly <laughs> you're you're underwater back in, you know, back in the Scottish Highlands. Right. And right, right, right. you go up and there's uh, Sean Connery rowing a boat um, while you try to balance, uh, you know, and then and then emerge like the Lady of the Lake covered in in seaweed. There, there is a just a high awesomeness quotient you know what the one that struck me right off the bat like in the first five minutes in the movie was what in our day it would be a drone shot that goes all around overhead over a bunch of people in madison square garden kind of around the um 
around the the wrestling ring, right? And then back into the crowd and then up into like the second balcony and finds um, you know, finds our hero kind of sitting, not enjoying himself as has been described before. And that like, I thought about, I looked at that and was like, wow, what is that? Like, if that's a crane, where did they maybe bolt the crane to the, uh, to the top of the, to the top of the kind of the rigging in, in Madison mm. Square Garden? But like, yeah, it was, there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of stuff, some good helicopter stuff in the Highlands as well. But, um, I mean, I, you're sort of talking about the, the cutting pattern and yeah, it's, it's, uh, association and it's, it's, um, sort of graphic and it's also, it was also kind of very rhythmic. Like, uh, the, it, it's interesting when, um, when the Kurgan kills the prepper, the, like the Russia, the cold war prepper, you know, uh, and <laughs> stabs him in the, this or, is after the Kurgan kills the Ethiopian prince, oh, right? Oh yeah, no, it's the Ethiopian prince actually that this happens after. The the prepper, is he Ethiopian? I think so, yeah, yeah, the prepper the prepper is later because the prepper machine guns him and and gets stabbed for his troubles. Yeah. Um and I like I like Mark's description of like he's in the hospital subsequently uh, because he witnessed the quickening. Also he was stabbed. Um <laughs> That, uh, <laughs> but wow, that, that must have been something to put him in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> that quickening, right? That's a, um, but, uh, did you see his shirt, by the way? It was amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's a get, get ready Russia or something like that. Yeah. And it's like a nuclear missile and a, and a crosshairs. <laughs> oh yeah. Super, super, uh, yeah, for, for sure. Super, super kind of prepper vibes, right? That, and, um, but before that, when, when he kills the immortal, uh, Ethiopian prince, right? He, there is a, after the quickening or subsequent, uh, su- subsequent or like, uh, concomitant <laughs> with the quickening, right? There is an explosion of literally everything all around. Uh, you know, all the glass shatters in the windows high above this, this alley, you know, between two brick buildings. Some of the brick cr- crumble, crumbles, fire shoots out of the windows and the manhole covers explode, uh, up with a, a belching of flame, you know, like at a rock concert, a sort of flash pot or like a fire, you know, pyrotechnic effect shoots up into the air that sets the uh, that sets the that kind of launches the manhole covers into the air like, uh, you know, uh, uh, like little cylindrical projectiles. And um, and the, the they clearly they shot all of these things once and the whole sequence has gone through like seven or eight times in the course of uh in the course of this it's like let's show the manhole covers exploding let's show the glass breaking okay let's show the glass breaking from another angle let's show the glass breaking but then the fire shoots out let's show the manhole covers again let's do the manhole covers guy is back to the manhole covers all right now glass raining down all over everything while fire shoots out above Okay, now the high angle shot looking down on the alley as you see the glass explode out. And by the way, the fire shoots out and then there's a manhole cover, but it's coming towards the camera now because we're, yeah. we're above and then cut down and show the manhole covers exploding. And like, they do this thing, like they, they acquire, they, you know, captured a lot of these things. And it's like, it's a drum solo, you know, the, the, it's, it's done for kind of like rhythmic effect. You know, it's, it's a, um, it's an exercise in sort of gradually building kind of and partially releasing and then finally fully releasing tension, you know, uh, it, right. The, the whole, um, 
the whole thing looks very cool. It's a kind of orange and red on black uh sort of thing it has an audience like there are people around to like go but they're you know they're music video people so they stay behind a chain link fence for for maximum <laughs> urban grittiness uh right for like maximum contrast of textures and sort of lighting effect uh when you when you shoot them and then let's do the manhole covers and then they explode <laughs> up show me the manhole covers boom 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 <laughs> Boom, 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 crash, crash, fire, fire, boom, ba boom, ba boom, ba boom, crash, crash, fire, manhole cover. And that, like, uh, that was. I just um, imagined you as a backup singer in an acapella group. <laughs> saying, <laughs> I don't know yeah. what song they're singing on top of it, but. <laughs> this is a great explanation of what's going on, Matt. And just, uh, uh, it's worth, uh, mentioning that this exact technique is repeated at the end of the movie. Yeah. Right. Um, after, uh, spoiler alert. Uh, our hero defeats the Kurgan, um, and the quickening occurs. Um, the the glass behind him explodes, and let's explode it again. Let's do it again. It is that like gratuitous end of a song at a rock concert where the drummer is just and the is just unleashing everything, and the guitarists are also going and you think it's over, and then it just go again. I do like I do like that the location for the final battle is like where are we going to do the final battle guys? I know. Let's do it at the studio where we're shooting the movie. <laughs> <laughs> it was supposed to be the top of the Statue of Liberty, but they couldn't get it. So instead, the final battle in Highlander happens on top of the building where they shot Sex in the City. <laughs> most of it. <laughs> right, yeah. Wait, or- is, that, is that actually true, Pete? Yeah, that was okay. Yeah, so I mean, studios, the biggest, a lot movie of the, studio in New York. Yeah, yeah, a lot of those uh, HBO shows were shot there, like uh, uh, the New Jersey Shore one. What's it called? The Atlantic the City, or oh. no, the Boardwalk, Boardwalk, Boardwalk Empire. Empire. Oh, Boardwalk Empire. Empire. There, there you go. Yeah, um, yeah, a lot of that yeah, stuff. The, the Silver Cup Studios is a legit landmark in uh, in in Queens, um, but not uh, your first choice of where you would have an epic climactic action scene in a movie. I mean, how many other how many other epic climactic action scene settings do they pass through before going to the Silver Cup Studios? They definitely drive past the climactic uh, scene location from the Spider Tobey Maguire Spider Man movie <laughs> at high speed. I don't know about how many. Which other, is, no, is that the the Triborough Bridge? Or the, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's the Queens. Yeah, the Triborough Bridge. The, Queen, the, the Queensboro Bridge. Bridge. Oh, the yeah, Queensboro yeah, the Bridge. Bridge. Oh, maybe is the Queensboro and Triborough? Those are different bridges. Yeah, those are different bridges. So then I and guess the, the Highlander is probably on the, sh- the crappier one than the one Tommy McGuire was on. That was probably the nice one. The one with the gondolas, right? Um, is the is the Triborough. Uh, the one with uh, the gondolas was actually the, well, it's close to the Queensboro Bridge, but it's the, it's a connecting Roosevelt Island with the Manhattan. How does okay, it let's, feel, get, let's give you, let me give you a detail. By, the, by the way, this movie like makes excellent use of real locations uh, in New York City. And, um, and uh, the, the, the bar where... Uh, one of the meetings takes place earlier on Peter Brickmanis. Uh, I've been there, right? I I, I actually uh, ordered a whiskey and uh, had a very creepy conversation with a guy with a, a untraceable European accent. There, it's funny how those things happen. This is this is New York, baby. <laughs> it's 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 the New York miracle. Be a part of it. Be a part it's, of it. It's still open. You can actually order from the bar they go to in Highlander for takeout or delivery during COVID. They have a very nice message on their, uh, on their website about their special COVID delivery rules. Uh, because remember, while there can be only one, uh, you know, please 
Highlander responsibly. <laughs> exactly. So. There can only there can be only one. Remember, in these times, in these unprecedented trademark times, there can be only one <laughs> within six feet of any other one. Right, right. There you go. <laughs> All right, let's leave it there. Um, We're done already. We're yeah, already done with Highlander. Oh uh, no! And, uh, it went so fast. You think you have forever? Oh no! Uh, with with great gratitude for uh, for Pete for suggesting that we watch Highlander, and also great gratitude for the life of Sean Connery. Peace be upon him. Uh, let's draw this episode of the Overthinking Podcast to a close. Thank you for listening, Pete and Mark. Thanks for podcasting, Pete. Thank you especially. For holding out hope all these many, many months and years that one day we would see the Highlander film and talk about it on the Overthinking a Podcast. That's, uh, you, you really, uh, you were a torchbearer, uh, you know, and, uh, you, you did it and you were, you were successful. You're a testament to the, to the power of tenacity and, and, what can, uh, I, what can I say, Matt? It's a kind of magic. <laughs> all right. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking a Podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It It probably doesn't So the real Highlander fans will say, how could you do a podcast about Highlander without mentioning Mythos? So here it is. I'm mentioning Mythos.